Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Chapter 11, verse 32 and following through 12.3. Yes. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, through the comm- though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and then sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and learn about you and the opportunity to praise your name. Pray that we would uh, take uh, Pastor Matt's uh, words to heart and uh, your word, Lord, and just help us to uh, just seek to uh, do uh, well by your word every day. In your name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Obviously, faith is the big ticket word here. And it's big ticket because he goes all the way back and traces it back to Genesis. And moves it forward to say, this is what all great people of our belief system have uh, in large quantities. Faith. And you think, well, yeah, what exactly is that? I love what Clarence Jordan, Clarence Jordan wrote the Cotton Patch Gospels. He was a PhD in Koine Greek, decided to go country with his uh, paraphrase of the scripture. But I love what he says about the word faith. Every time it comes up in his Hebrews, he calls it living by the unseen. He says, a lot of people just get really distracted with the fact, I can't see this God, therefore, we'll just go ahead and make one. And that was always the problem in the Old Testament. They made gods when they got tired of not seeing one. And when they made them, they made molten images and basically started worshiping these molten images, and, uh, and, and on we go, we're off to the races. But this Old Testament suggests you can, in fact, live by the unseen. You know his voice, you know his instructions, You've seen what he's done in human history. In fact, one day he did show up to be seen. Most of us have never seen him. Most of us didn't even at the time of Jesus see him. But having said that, he was here. Now he sends an unseen spirit. You're going to have to live by the unseen. Believe in the unseen. Put your trust in the unseen if you're going to make a run at this faith. So that's substantially what faith is. I am betting on God that I can't see. I'm betting my life on him. I'm betting my life on this God that I cannot indeed and in fact see. And so for the joy set before him, he endured so much for us that we might know this faith. 
I don't, anybody here ever seen the movie Dead Poets Society? Any, any sinners out here today? I, I, see, I see those hands. I'll say, don't go to movies That's right, right before I explain how I saw it and, uh, and kind of enjoy the movie. Dead Poets Society is about a, a controversial English teacher named John Keating. John Keating in the 1950s goes to this prep school somewhere in the uh, Northeast and decides, I'm going to teach my kids, I'm going to teach my classroom about the great poets and how they can read these poets and gain inspiration from these lives and from these great words. How they can go back to Plato or, or Cicero. Uh, how they can go back to these great ones and gain motivation and inspiration for their living today. Now, that's a tall order. It's not done very well pretty much anywhere. But John Keating did an extraordinary job. He went to the school and, and started. And my favorite, my favorite scene, probably everybody's favorite scene, honestly, everybody's favorite scene in the movie comes at the beginning of the movie. You know, you want to start slow and have a big ending. This had a big beginning. And what he does, he goes into the first day of class and, you know, kind of does a couple of unorthodox things. He says, hey, come on, follow me out here. So they follow him out into the hallway. And they go before a bunch of photographs. It's actually the school's trophy case. If you've ever seen a trophy case, a bunch of trophies now no one cares about. By the way, think about that. You worked so hard for that trophy, no one cares. <laughs> After this year, no one cares. They're going to stick in a trophy case, and they're going to yawn as they go by. No one cares about the trophy. No one cares about all that effort you put in this year. Next year, they'll forget all about it. You know, I usually think about this as resume introductions versus funeral introductions. Resume introductions are all of the trophies I won. Funeral introductions is, you know, he was kind. He was pure. He was a good man. We work for the resume, don't we? But God looks down on the character. Still, here's all these trophies, and they're looking at him. And what's cool about this trophy case is there are pictures there. And so John Keating, uh, I'm just going to quote, quote from the movie for you because I can't get it quite as beautifully as he got it. John Keating says, okay, everybody, look in. I want you to look in at these faces. And so they're all looking into these faces. And Keating says this, I want you to step forward, peruse some of those faces from the past right now. You've walked past them many times, but I don't really think you've ever looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things. Look at them, look at them, look at the pictures. Their eyes full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their own lives even one iota what they were capable of? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. If you listen real close, you can hear them. Can you hear them? Listen. Look at their faces. Listen. If you listen real close, you can hear them whispering their legacy to you.
think the first comment after that is one of the boys is walking away with another kid. He says, man, that was weird. You know something? That's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 are Abraham saying, day spring, carpe diem, seize the day. It's Enoch saying, seize the day. It's Rahab saying, I did it. You can do it too. Seize that no matter what your past is, no matter what your addictions were, no matter if you were a prostitute, you can do it. You can seize the day. And that's exactly what Hebrews 11 is talking about. He says, therefore, by the way, there you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. Well, that's why it's there. All these people whispering to you, saying, seize the day. Your life can be extraordinary. Seize the day. I just love this chapter for that very reason. Now, if you think about seize the day, I want you to think about a couple other things as well. When you look down at that list, it's interesting who's in that list and who isn't. I'm thinking, you know, just like Caleb read just a moment ago, he read through just, we've been through all the big timers. So we've been through the big timers. Now, we don't have time to go through Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. David, wait a minute. I'm thinking, if I'm David, listen, Salter, listen, the great king, they named Jesus after me, the son of David. David, all I get is a mention, just a mention, just a name as we zip along a bunch of names. But that's how many people actually in the Old Testament live that kind of life. David only gets a little itty bitty mention. Why? Because there were many people who decided to live by the unseen carpe. Diem. They did it. They seized the day. They lived by the unseen. They began to say, we can be the kind of people that God wants us to be. And they were that kind of people. My favorite are the no-names. We've already talked about them a little bit. But my favorite are down there, which starts talking about the word others. I like that word others. Others. Uh, verse 35b. Others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. No names were put in chains. No names were put in imprisonment. They were stoned, these no names. These no names were sawed in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted. These no names were ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I love that group of people, no-name people, that did it. They live by the unseen. They seize the day for God. They might have played a little role, but that role was extraordinary. And I believe whoever wrote the Hebrews right now writes to Rome and says, Listen, you, Hebrew, you, you Jewish Christians, you need to remember this. You might be no names, your role might be small, but just like these people of the great faith chapter, just like these people of the faith hall of fame, you can seize the day. You can live lives of faith. You can live by the unseen for the kingdom glory. And that's exactly what you're called to do. I've been delighted to have uh, Tommy Artman here come, a uh, pastor down the road. He was with the United Methodist Church. He's retired now and trying to sell a house. He comes. I, I appreciate him. Tommy, one of the things that I've noticed across the years is uh, our people of our profession uh, deal with burnout. Pastoral burnout, they call it. Uh, and I've always wondered about that. 
is there such a thing as plumber burnout? Businessman burnout. Why don't teachers get a burnout? You know, it's always the pastor guys that get the burnout. Why is there, pa- and very few pastors will ever make it. They'll, they'll start their churches at 22 and they get out of seminary. Very few of them make it to 65 or 70. Very few. Almost none. Uh, they say something like 10% will actually make it to the end of their career hanging on because of pastoral burnout. Now, I'm a pastor, so I can do this when I'm about ready to do. But I want to ask my pastor friends that. Hey, listen. You know, everything we do is infused with meaning. Everything we do, counseling is infused with meaning, I mean, sermon prep, praying for people, it's all meaning. Imagine the guy that's fixing the pipes underneath my house when all of a sudden he turns his wrench the wrong way and out spews this black stuff, odiferous stuff, all into his face. Where's the meaning? I tell you what, burnout? I got burnout right now. That's what I'm thinking. Pastoral burnout? Hey, listen, I always want to tell my friends, read one month of Francis Asbury's journal. One month of Francis Asbury's journal, then get back to me about pastoral burnout. Francis Asbury, that got no love from pretty much anybody wherever he went. And Francis Asbury, who'd ride in town, preach the gospel, he says, you know, it's getting late, I've got to sleep somewhere. Anybody got a house I can sleep? We don't have a house, we got a barn. Go stay. Hey, he's you know, a little bit chilly, got a couple blankets. Well, we might be able to get one extra blanket in the house as he freezes on the straw in the barn at 25 degrees. Then he gets on his horse. There's no trail up to where he's got. He's got to go over that mountain path. He's got to go through that mountain. Hey, there's no trail up there, but he's got to go up there and go, go, go. And uh, I don't know. Read one month of Francis Asbury. Then talk to me about pastoral burnout. Listen, you know the way Americans do burnout? They say, I got to get up. Even though I hate this job, I got to get up because my kids need fed. I'm going to get up. And pastors need to be the same thing. But I'm just talking about pastors right now. I think this thing was written to Jewish Christians, not the pastors. I think this thing was written to Jewish Christians to say, listen, I know, I know. I know you're starting to deal with persecution. I know you're starting to deal with tough times. But I want to tell you about something. Torture. I want to talk about getting sawed in two. I want you to know about mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. There are other people going through what you're scared to go through, and I understand why you're scared, but know this. They seized the day anyway. They rushed him into caves. They hid under rocks. They did everything they could, and yet they lived by the unseen. They seized the day. They could do it. You need to do it. Francis Asbury could do it. You need to do it. The great ones have always been on the brink of burnout and said, I'm not going to burn out. If I'm going to burn anything, I'm going to burn up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, that's got to be how we view this thing. A little bit tired today? Yeah. Tell me about the last time you got sawed in two. We're called to live by the unseen. We're called to carpe diem. To seize the day. Why? Because we've got a whole bunch of people that have done it before us. I always think about burnout. What must my dad have gone through? He went to a job, decade after decade after decade, a job he hated, doing things that you didn't want to do, doing things for chump change. My mom saw dad wasn't making enough money, so she went off and did something she didn't want to do over the decades. Two people not doing stuff they don't want to do because 
That's what they had to do to raise their kids in the fear of the Lord. I don't ever remember once them complaining about it. They just got up and did their duty. Is there such a thing as Christian duty? Yeah, there is. It's called carpe diem. It's called live by the unseen. It's called be what perhaps you don't even want to be for the glory of God, but be it with Jesus, and he will make your life indeed extraordinary. I, uh, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. You know that. I'm a fan of a lot of great authors, but C.S. Lewis is one of them. And at, the, at our prayer meeting on Wednesday, I was telling everybody about the screw tape letters. Do you know about the screw tape letters? This is about a C.S. Lewis, but I understand he went into a depression after he wrote this book because he had to get inside the mind of a devil. It's a senior devil, an uncle devil, writing to his nephew on how to screw up a human being, how to really mess up this human being. So he's saying, okay, nephew, keep these things in mind. And in one chapter, he actually says this. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Now, this is his nephew. Our cause, the evil cause, is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe on which every trace of him seems to have vanished. He asks the question, why have I been forsaken? And then he still obeys. The devil says, our evil cause is never more in danger than when a man, when a woman says, I am burned out. I feel my life blown up to smithereens. I feel forsaken. I am angry and yet still obeys. That's when the devil is on the run and that's when the kingdom is on the march. And this whole chapter, chapter 11, ends up in a great climax saying, and that's precisely what those people were. They lived by the unseen. They seized the day even though they were getting sawed into extraordinary stuff. And it's the life Jesus calls us to. Now, you see there, chapter 12 begins with the word therefore. It's, it's a cause and effect word. Uh, we, we went to seminary together, Tommy and I did. We, we, we studied with the great Robert Trana. Robert Trana said, therefore, usually means this. There's a statement, that's the cause, and then there's effect right after this. So it says, therefore, you got all these cloud of witnesses, all these incredible people that live by the unseen, all these incredible people in chapter 11 that seize the day, therefore, you need to do three things. And it's three, huh, I don't even know how to say this, lettuces. How do you say that? Some, some grammar Nazi needs to be here today to tell me. How do you say lettuces? All right, it's let, three lettuces, okay? Let us lay aside every encumbrance, let us run with endurance, and let us, and the lettuce there is inferred, but let us fix our eyes on Jesus first. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and every entanglement. Okay. Uh, we went uh, yesterday, we, we traveled this weekend uh, to New Orleans, actually yesterday. Went up there and came back yesterday to New Orleans. Uh, in, their, in their great basketball stadium there, uh, the, I guess it's the Smoothie King Arena. We went inside. That's where the Pelicans play, the NBA team. And so there were two teams that got the opportunity, a homeschool team and a private school team, that got to uh, play on the NBA court. It's a special program they do, so they play on the NBA court, and then we go out and eat in New Orleans somewhere. We come back, and three hours later, 
the Pelicans played the Phoenix Suns. So we got to watch that game. It was a fun event. I noticed that uh, if you're on the bench and uh, you're trying to, you want to play, but you're not playing yet, uh, you're on there. And I, got, I had a guy like that, one of the guys at the University of Kansas, a guy named Josh Jackson. I uh, played for the University of Kansas. I'm kind of interested in Josh. And, and so he's sitting on the bench. He didn't start. And all of a sudden, coach yells down and says, Josh, need you in. And Josh has, is, is fully clothed. I mean, he's got a top on. He's got bottoms on. He stands up and immediately jumps out of this stuff. And he jumps off because the warm-ups, when you're actually playing the game, is an entanglement. It's an encumbrance. It's something you don't need in order to play the game. In fact, probably just not getting away much, getting away just a little, let me get rid of it and go. Listen, I'm a track and field guy. I do the field event called the discus, but I, I, I watch sometimes track and field because I'm, I guess I'm supposed to. It's a pretty boring thing to watch, but I notice these races. Have you seen how they dress these days for these races? They're wearing practically nothing. In fact, I, I highly recommend don't watch it. It's like, whoo, nothing to the imagination on that woman. I mean, come on, put something on. But they don't. They try to strip down virtually naked in order that there be no entanglement, no encumberment on them so that they can run. Now, if it's 26 miles of running, guess what? I don't want an extra one quarter pound on me because if you think about it, one quarter pound for every step across 26 miles is some serious weight. They don't want any serious weight on them. But it's not just 26 miles. They don't want any serious weight on them for a single 100 meters. They will get down, stripped down to when they are virtually naked. In fact, that's why... Christians, the early Christians were against the Olympics because they did the thing practically, some of them did all naked. They just stripped down. That's the way they competed. Naked. I like, I like the way the southern people say it. Naked. They stripped down naked to do what they were going to do. So when I was throwing the discus, I actually convinced myself, I will practice in a t-shirt, but for game day for the meet, I'm going to take my t-shirt off. And I convinced myself that a t-shirt probably meant about 10 feet. Now, it doesn't mean anything. You ought to throw it with a t-shirt on. But, you know, if I strip it down and just have this, uh, this top on, I think it's probably about worth 10 feet. I had actually psyched myself up thinking, I've got to tear away every encumbrance, including this stupid t-shirt, because when I do, whoo, I'm really going to throw this thing. And I did. I, I stripped it off, and I would always throw further with my t-shirt off than with it on. Now, would it matter? I convinced myself it did. But, folks, the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince you of something, and that is everything that is not Jesus in your life needs to be stripped away. Oh, think about that. Everything in your life that is not Jesus needs to be stripped away so that you can run the race marked out for you. Think about that. Now, here's what's interesting. The longer you live, the more you're going to find out. I didn't hear Jesus telling me that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but he's telling it to me now. So I better do something about it now. And that's what a life of discipleship is. He will talk to you about some things this year that he's never talked to you about before as being an entanglement. You want to know why? Because even good things, sometimes I'm thinking especially good things, can be encumberments to you in your life. He said, I want you to get away 
get, get, get things out of your way, anything. And that's why some people will begin thinking in terms of what does, what does it mean to have a Jesus diet? What's it mean to have Jesus clothing? What's it mean to have a Jesus TV? Can you have a Jesus TV? What's it mean to play Jesus video games? Can you say, hey, it's legitimate. Can you say, what is Jesus porn? You think, Jesus porn, come on, really? You gonna pull that one out? Yeah, that's the point. No, I don't wanna pull it out. But as you're watching it, you need to say, is there anything here of Jesus? The answer is gonna be no, get it out of your life. But the same thing can be true of any single thing you do or don't do in your life. And he wants to say, anything that's not of me, I want you to get rid of it. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin was so easily entangles. Then this, he says, let us run with endurance. That's a major point. Let us run with perseverance. Twice in chapter 11 and three times in rapid succession here is his word endurance. The Greek word means do not recede or flee away from it. You need to run with endurance. Don't quit. Don't flee from it. Don't get distracted. Keep going hard with it. I'm, a, I'm getting to be a geezer. 59. My birthday's coming up in May, so I've decided I got four goals, and I'm still de deciding on the fourth one, what that's going to look like. I think I know what it is. But uh, three of them are physical. Uh, I want to be able to, first off, weigh a certain weight. Uh, you know, I start off at 270, so I'm kind of winnowing down. And by the way, birthday's coming sooner than I want it to. I'm, uh, I might have to, like, practice some surgery or something to get off what needs to get off by then. I mean, but I'm, I'm going to try to get down to a certain weight, so I got a certain weight. Then I want to take a, you all know what a kettlebell is? Kettlebell is a big cannonball at the end of a handle. It's a thing, a Russian thing, basically. And a kettlebell is supposed to be, okay, I'm going to take it, and with 53 pounds, I'm going to do a snatch with it, just like that. And uh, I'm going to try to do that with both arms uh, 100 times in five minutes. I don't think I can do it. That's, that's why it's a goal. I, good luck with that. i got a 70-pounder right now that I'm working out with. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Anyway, so I'm working out. And then I want to run a half marathon. So after, as soon as I'm done with that, I'm going to take about 15 minutes to catch my breath. Then I'm going on a half marathon. And you think, wow, that's a lot for a fat boy like you. I've been fatter. And I've run marathons before. So I, at 255 pounds, I've run marathons. I got about five of those under, underneath my belt. And you say, well, how does a fat boy like you run marathons? How do you do that? It's a great question. When you start off, you think there's no way. I mean, I, I haven't been running for years. Now let me start off. And so the first, uh, the first day you're out, you might run a mile, but that's not very ha a happy mile. Uh, what I've always done is just say, okay, I ran 10 minutes, I'm going to run uh, 11 minutes. Then I'm going to run 15 minutes. Then I'm going to run. I just add, add a minute a day. Run three times a week, and pretty soon, guess what? You're up to four hours. Now, not by adding a minute. Eventually, what you do is run a long run. And so you put your long runs on the weekend. You run three times during the week in the long run. And right now, in my long run, I'm up to 70 minutes. Next time I do a long run, I'll add 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes after that, every couple weeks, add 10 minutes, and pretty soon, I'm running for two and a half hours, and it's no big deal. I'm going to tell you, say, well, that must really be tough. It's not tough. It's really easy. You just go out there, you start daydreaming, and you just keep the feet moving. And you just go, and go, and go, and go, and go. And then two and a half hours are gone, you've done it. 
It's an amazing thing. How do you do that? You don't do it overnight. That's why I think this endurance thing is huge. You will not be able to endure by saying, I'm a Christian today, let me endure. You have no idea what endurance means as a new Christian. You put one step ahead of another and you learn. And over the period of a year, and then two years, and then 10 years, and then 20 and 30 and 40 years, you learn what it means to persist, to endure. Calvin Coots said, the words press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Truth is, I don't know how spiritual a man he was, but he was dead on with Paul, who said, press on. And friends, this endurance thing is huge for us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, let us endure, and let us work up to this endurance by maturation. And the third thing is this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix in the Greek simply means turn them away from other things and fix them on me. Now, friends, some of us have our eyes on multiple things. Got to get them off of the multiple things and put them on Jesus. And that's where your extraordinary life begins being able to seize the day, to be able to be living by the unseen. I uh, think the best way to do this is to have a daily time in the Word of God, is to have a daily time in prayer, is to fast. <laughs> by the way, it speaks about fasting. Uh, a substantial amount in, in, in the Bible, and almost none of us do it. Wednesdays and Fridays are fast days here at Dayspring. I just hope that you try to say at least one meal a day I can skip. Now, some people go say, wow, one meal? You don't eat it? Like you starve? <laughs> Folks, you know, we're not a self-denial people, are we? We're not a self-denial people. And you know we're not a self-denial people when you just say that. Let's not eat for 12 hours. <laughs> not eat. Not eat. You're saying like, starve? Folks, you can go 40 days like that. You can go 40 days like that. I'm not saying it's going to feel good, but you can do it. Many, many, many people do it. You can do this. I don't know, Pastor Matt. I don't know. I mean, I get hungry. <laughs> we need to learn how to deny ourselves. That's why I think fasting always was. It's practice in denying yourself. If you can do it for a meal a week, if you get it for two meals a week, then I'm going to call you some other things. And when you deny yourself of this thing, watch your life burst open. But it's hard to say, let me get rid of everything that's not Jesus if you can't get rid of a meal a week. And that's why we have always been a fasting people. That's why Dayspring has always said, Wednesdays and Fridays are fast days. I get almost nobody does it. You can do it. You ought to do it. Practice self-denial. By the way, in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, when you fast. Didn't say, if you get around to it. If you fast, it says, when you do it, just the assumption was there. Everybody does this that loves Jesus. Everybody does this that takes God seriously. So we pray. So we read our Bible. So we fast. So we get together in community like this. So we, and, and, and John Wesley says, and the other side of that is that's works of piety. Then there's works of mercy. And every person that counts themselves part of our theological tribe needs to know we want to be like Jesus. And Jesus nearly every day 
reached out to the poor, to the needy, to the downtrodden. We can afford to do it at least once a week, said John Wesley. So it was works of piety. Works of piety says we're going to do the kinds of things that Dayspring does on a regular basis. We throw them up on our screens every week. We've been out to prison. We've been to the abortion clinic. We've visited the sick. We have been to places. And this is important. It's essential for you to do. Who says so? Well, let's start with John Wesley. John Wesley says, if you don't reach out to the poor, to the oppressed, to the downtrodden, you're going to go to hell. Now, don't, don't, don't do it. I see some of you getting an attitude right now with me. Don't do it. I didn't say that. John Wesley said it. And John Wesley said, don't get an attitude with me. I didn't say that. Jesus said it. So if you want to get ticked out, you know that great I am we were talking about? We love singing the great I am. I love singing that song. The great I am. I was shouting. Did you hear me? The great I am. The great I am. Yeah, the great. What if that great I am says, if you want to love on me this week, I'll be at the prison. If you want to love me this week, I'll be with the needy. If you want to love me this week, I'll be in the middle of a needy public school. If you want to love me this week, I was hungry. You fed me. It's heaven for you. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. It's heaven for you. I was in prison. You came to me. I was sick, racked in pain upon my bed, and you ministered to me. It's heaven for you. And you're going to say, when? <laughs> Lord, I, you're going to be part of day spring. You're going to be a, been doing this stuff for years. You're going to get to the throne of God. And he's going to say those words to you, and you're going to say, ah, I don't know. When? When were you thirsty? When were you hungry? When were you in prison? And he's going to look down at you and say, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Amen. You know where I'm going next, right? Because Matthew 25 has the other thing. I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. Go to hell. I was thirsty and sick and in prison. You didn't really care. You didn't have any time for me. Go to hell. When we decide to fix our eyes on Jesus, we will do it through prayer, through the Bible, through fasting. We will fix our eyes on Jesus through works of mercy. We will fix our eyes on Jesus as we practice his presence. Very few churches and very few people in any even good church get around to practicing that robust balance we are called to. I want to say one more thing before I wrap this up. It says, for the joy set before him. So on Monday, I throw these verses out. And I throw these verses out to, uh, to my discipleship group I'm going to meet with on Monday and one of, the past, one of my pastor friends came at me. I said, what do you think the joy set before him means? And he said, I think it means the glorification of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. I'm thinking, could be. You know what I think it is? Particularly since he was brought up uh, with the longest and most words said about him in the previous chapter, I think it's about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant went, went like this. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, to be a blessing, and I'm going to make of you a nation and out of all the nations, they're all going to be blessed because of you and your nation. 
And what Abraham didn't know is eventually the Son of God would come in to the womb of a virgin in the middle of that nation and come forth, and Israel becomes the launching pad of a great godly movement. Jesus Christ came through the nation, the nation that he wanted to use in order to bless all other nations. And I'm going to suggest to you this. That's what this is about. The joy set before Jesus is that that might come to fruition, that that vision might come all the way to Clinton, Mississippi, and not just to Clinton, Mississippi. It come all the way to your impact card. Come all the way to say, I want to bless those people, those folks that don't know Jesus on that impact card. That's what the joy set before him. He was willing to endure anything that this list might come to know him as Lord and Savior. He was willing to do anything that you might come to know him as Lord and Savior. That's what the joy set before him meant. And I just want us to be a part of that joy. I want us to say, let us know that before us are the nations, surely the world, but also the people all around us that don't yet know him, that can know him, if we're willing to live by the unseen, if we're willing to carpe diem, if we're willing to lay aside every encumbrance, run with endurance, and fix our eyes on the great I am in the person of Jesus Christ. Amistad. I tried you out on a movie. How about a second movie? Amistad. Anybody see Amistad? Anybody? Oh, my goodness, people. Get this movie. You need to see this movie. I don't recommend movies much. Don't see the first one I talked about. See this one. Amistad. Amistad is a great historical moment in the United States of America. You all know about these slave ships. They came from largely Africa, and they came to substantially America. Not only America, but came to America, and they came with slaves. They had been enslaved in places like Africa. I was uh, once in Lagos, Nigeria, and they have a place right by the water called the point of no return. If you walk through those gates, you were never coming back. They were going to put you on a boat. They were going to chain you down. They were going to cut you. They are going to rape the women. It was going to be a horrendous, horrendous thing as they brought you to America to enslave you. You did not want to go by the point of no return. And one day, they got a guy. His name was Sinke. They got Sinke into one of those boats. He was a proud man, and yet he was enslaved. He was there, he was bleeding, he was starved, he was thirsty, and he was mad. And so on that slave ship called the Amistad, he found a way out of his chains. And he got out and he unchained others of his friends that were there. And they had a revolt on the ship Amistad. They revolted and they, uh, they murdered and they protected themselves but the problem was now we are free men on this boat. But we don't know where we're going. They've never been out on water before. They didn't know how to navigate back home where they wanted to go back home to. They had no idea what they were doing. And so they had to trust the people who were still alive that were from America to say, take us back to Africa. And they said, sure, we'll do that. But they didn't do it. They took them right to Connecticut. And they said, now, this is what has happened. They gave their account, and they 
put these men in the prison. And the story of Amistad, put together by Steven Spielberg, is about what happened in the next 27 months. These freed men are now back in captivity, and they think they've got an argument why there's no way you can enslave us because we found our freedom before we ever got to America. How can you do this to us? And they're going through 27 arduous months. Now, it's, it's, this is during the time of a former president, John Quincy Adams. Remember, his, he had a dad, and now he's got a son, and, and now he is elderly. And he is arguing this case before the Supreme Court. And he gets before the Supreme Court in his closing speech, and he is pleading with them with these stirring words. I'm just going to read them to you. Last night, he said, I spoke with my friend Sinke. I told him what was going to transpire here today in the Supreme Court. He told me, as was the practice among the people, he'd been talking to his ancestors, now long gone. Those ancestors told Sinke that all would be well. John Quincy Adams then turned to the members of the Supreme Court, and he said, As I stand before you today, I believe we would do well to learn from Sinke. We would do well to talk to our ancestors. Adams went on to invoke the names of the founding fathers and some early Supreme Court justices. And he said stuff like this. George Washington, gone. Thomas Jefferson, gone. James Madison, gone. Then he talked about early Supreme Court justice, names you wouldn't probably know quite as well. But after every great name he said aloud, he said the word, gone, gone, gone. Then he finished with this challenge. John Quincy Adams said, all of them, gone. Who among you today is ready to step into their legacy and defend freedom? Who today is prepared to take the place of our ancestors and become great? In the name of God, become great and make this nation great once again. That's what this passage is all about. Listen to your ancestors. Listen to the people of your faith. Because Abraham sees the day and they live by the unseen. Because Abel did the same, as did Enoch, as did those no-names. They live by faith. They live extraordinary lives, living by the unseen, seizing the day, because, because God gave them the grace to exercise that faith, and he gives each and every one of you the same thing today. How many here are willing to live by the unseen? How many here today are willing to seize the day because that's God's great dream for your life. Could you please stand? Lord Jesus Christ, those standing today right now want to live lives that are extraordinary. And I believe the names in Hebrews 11 and the great name that we see in Hebrews 12, the name of Jesus whispers to them today, Carpe Diem, seize the day. Be people of faith, live by the unseen in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, in the name of the great I am three in one. Hallelujah. 
Lord, make it happen in and through Dayspring, even this week. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.